Vatican is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Thank you for joining us. You're listening to Evidence for Faith. This is the show that explains the benefits of Christianity for personal happiness and human flourishing. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hello, and I'm Kirk Hastings. Today's topic is going to be the doctrine of the church. Evidence for Faith is currently on five stations across the United States. Our website is evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence and the number four, faith.com. If you'd like to listen to podcasts of previous shows, you can also listen to us on iTunes and check us out on the TuneIn Radio app if you'd like to listen to us on your iPod or iPhone. To email us, email us at email at evidenceforfaith.com. Well, Kirk, we're talking about the doctrine of the church, a basic doctrine of Christianity about churches and what their role is. But before we do that, we have a email from a listener by the name of Dan, and he's referring back to a message that we gave, I guess, about two weeks ago. And he says, I've caught a few of your podcasts. A claim you made on the deity of Christ stuck out to me and hope you will clarify or correct it. My background is not in biblical criticism, so please excuse me if I'm missing something here. And then he quotes what we had to say in the show. This is the special use of the word Lord because in the Septuagint, the name of God was not transcribed. Instead, they use Lord as a placeholder for the word God. The apostles used that word to describe Jesus because they wanted to reserve the Greek word theos for God the Father. And then he says, later you say that of 1 Peter 3.15, when it says to revere Christ as Lord, it's specifically using the word Lord from the Septuagint. They are saying revere Christ as God, the Son that kurios is the Greek word they used as a replacement for the word God. And that's a pretty accurate explanation of what we said two weeks ago. We were talking about the doctrine of the divinity of Christ, and we were talking about one of the proofs of that is how Christ is called Lord, specifically using that placeholder word that was used in the Old Testament Septuagint. That was the Old Testament that Jesus and the apostles used instead of the word for God, Yahweh. So then he, our emailer, goes on to say, using Strong's Concordance, 
kurios is clearly used in the New Testament when it does not refer to God. So how can this line of reasoning be used to support Jesus' divinity when it clearly doesn't in other cases? And then he gives an example. He lists out, oh, maybe eight or nine different verses where the word kurios, the Greek word kurios, that means Lord, is used, but it's not referring to Jesus. So he says uh, several other usages of the word where God or Jesus are not the subject exist, but I wanted to keep the list concise unless there was some way of annotating this special use in the Greek, red letters, asterisks, etc., the argument falls flat. There are plenty of instances of kurios referring to either Jesus or God. But there are many other cases of the word being used in another sense. The use of the word is ambiguous and therefore cannot be used as you have in your argument to support the divinity of Jesus. All right, so that's uh, part one of his letter. He's got another section that he wants to bring up a different issue, but, but that was a good challenge. And he, the point that he's trying to make, you know, it seems pretty clear. If Lord is supposed to be this special word, that the Old Testament people used to replace the word for Yahweh, and then the New Testament writers wind up using the same word to describe Jesus, how can it be that in the Old Testament there are uses of the word that don't talk about God? And I guess it, you know, I'm not sure how this is actually an argument against the divinity of Christ, because imagine, I, I mean, the word they used as a placeholder for the word God wasn't a made-up word. It was another word that had been used for other purposes. So the word Lord, or in the Hebrew Adonai, was the word they were using, but that also had another different meaning. So I guess, you know, Kirk, I'm not sure, actually the objection doesn't have any weight, because let's say that they decided instead on the word frying pan, okay? (laughs) So every time they were translating, and they got to the Hebrew word Yahweh, and they wanted to translate it into Greek, they used frying pan. (laughs) Well, that doesn't mean that frying pan wouldn't still mean frying pan, and still be in other sentences where the word frying pan appears. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, it sounds to me like you're saying, just like we use the word Lord today to mean God, but we can also use it to mean, you know, a a political ruler. Yeah, that's the same thing, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So, So that's true. Now then, okay, then how do we know then that they don't mean when they're talking about Jesus and they call him Lord, how do we know then that they are using it in this special sense? Well, you go to the context, just like any word when you're trying to figure out how a certain word is being used, you go to the context. How is it being used? So if you look at the phrase, call upon the name of the Lord, this is a very common phrase in the Old Testament. It talks about prayer. And so when you go in prayer, call upon the name of Yahweh. Right. Now, an example would be Joel chapter 2, verse 32. So when the Septuagint translators translated it into Greek. They didn't want to write out Yahweh, and besides, what kind of sense would that make? Yahweh is a Hebrew word. So they wanted to use another word instead of Yahweh, and they used Adonai, or Lord. Okay. Okay? So, and they translated it kurios, so into Greek, Lord. Right. Now, and this is the same in English, too. 
In English, when even in the Old Testament, it'll say, call upon the name of the Lord. The English didn't transcribe it, call upon the name of Yahweh. So even in our English Old Testaments, it says, call upon the name of the Lord. Right. Now, what does it say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2? It uses that exact same phraseology, speaking about prayer, and it says, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. Well, gee, what do you think they're meaning? They mean Yahweh Jesus Christ. Call upon Jesus, our God. Right. So it is very clear that when you see Jesus called Lord, it's with a capital L. It means that you're describing deity to him. Well, uh, another, so, another example that occurs to me is uh, when Thomas, you know, when Jesus appeared to the disciples after his death and resurrection, and Thomas called him my Lord and my God. That's right. And now, when that kind of the... puts it into context by what he meant by Lord. He didn't mean, oh, you're, you know, a political ruler. He meant you're God. He's just saying Absolutely. the same thing twice, really. Yep. Yep, another another good example of of using the word Lord and meaning by it deity, meaning that placeholder word Adonai, right, for God. All right. So then, now the second part of his letter was also interesting. I thought during that episode, and that was an episode that you were away, Kirk. Yes, I was. Doctor Mike Larrakis was on the show, and he talked about the Trinity. We were talking about Jesus being God, and so he talked about what for him was an important explanation of the Trinity that made a lot of sense to him as a scientist, and that was when he learned about the what's called the triple point of water, where water at a certain temperature and pressure, water can be in the three forms of vapor, liquid, and gas simultaneously in the okay. same container. So for him, that meant a lot, and it was very explanatory of how there could be three persons in one being, you know, or a way I've heard it described is three who's in one what. So <laughs> if you're having trouble with the Trinity, this might help you. But this writer, our emailer, Dan, uh, says that this isn't really an accurate uh, description of the Trinity that can lead to modalism because each individual molecule is actually shifting in and out of different forms, and it's not each individual molecule is not in the same solid gas or liquid well, at the same time. Yeah, true. It's and, not an exact analogy. I don't think we have right. an exact analogy for what God is because God is unique. Well, yeah, and I don't like any kind of a physical analogy. You know, some people use an egg, you know, the shell, the yolk, and the white. Okay, you know, I mean, I guess if it helps you to understand the Trinity, it might be a little bit helpful. I try to avoid those physical descriptions of the Trinity. I go more with the abstract right. ideas, because God is essentially, to us, abstract. And so, I agree with the writer. I don't think that this triple point of water is a perfect analogy. It, it's not, it, it has its problems as any physical one. I like the analogy that C.S. Lewis talks about, about different dimensions. And we know that a one-dimensional being, let's see if you can imagine, you know, we live in a three-dimensional world and go back down to second, two dimensions, like maybe a painting, then go down to one dimension. And let's say you had a two-dimensional world, a painting, and you've got these one-dimensional figures, these stick figures that you've drawn 
Right. They would not. Could you explain to them how where the third dimension is? No, no. You, you really couldn't. They wouldn't really understand. But you might tell them this way. You might say, okay, well, you know about horizontal and you know about vertical. Just imagine that there's this world, this imaginary world where there's an additional direction like horizontal and vertical. Okay. Right. Now take that into the third dimensional world that we live in. And we've got th uh, three-dimensional objects, which is, think of a cube. Now, a cube is really made up of two-dimensional objects, different squares, right? Right. And a square, two-dimensional object, is made up of one-dimensional objects. So here we are living in this three-dimensional world. What if there's a fourth-dimensional world in which three-dimensional objects make up the fourth-dimensional objects? Do you right. see how uh -huh. that fits? So it's a, just a natural progression from first dimensional worlds to second dimensional worlds to third dimensional worlds where we live. And now we're talking about a fourth dimensional realm, a realm outside of our universe in which you can have three persons in one being or the Trinity. So right. to me, that was the most helpful one. And that's abstract. And it is uh, it doesn't have the problems that you deal with when you're talking about three-dimensional examples of the Trinity. I don't know. What's your favorite explanation of the Trinity for Actually, people? my favorite is the mathematical one. Okay. How's that, that go? Instead of one plus one plus one equals one, which obviously doesn't make sense, God is described as one times one times one equals one. Oh, okay. All right. I think that works pretty well. Very interesting. Yeah, whatever, whatever helps you. I... I think, think C.S. Lewis point, used that as an example, too, at one point. Well, the important thing is to remember that the Trinity is not a contradiction, because right. we're not talking about three of the same thing being one of the same thing, or in the same way. It's three who's in one what. It's just another way of reminding us that God is um, something that is totally outside our frame of reference, because he's... He's a spirit, and he, he exists in a different way than we do. So, you know, if we could perfectly explain exactly what God is, we'd have to be as smart as he is in order to understand what he is. Right. To me, it makes sense that we don't understand everything about him, because that is just another proof that he's, he's far and away, you know, above what we are. It's like somebody once said that it's like an ant trying to understand the Internet. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. It, it just, you can't do it. It doesn't mean it isn't real. It just means that we don't have the frame of reference to completely understand it. No, that's right. Well, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. We're going to be talking about the doctrine of the Church today. But before we do that, we have another news item. And this was something that I went to in Philadelphia last Wednesday. Dinesh D'Souza was debating David Silverman, who is the head of the American Atheist Society, and the question was, is Christianity good for America? Now, this was a great debate. Kirk, there were 800 people there, at least, filling this auditorium on the University of Pennsylvania campus. Wow. Terrific, great audience. Just judging by the applause, my guess is that were, there were about two-thirds of the audience in favor of Christianity and about a third opposed. Okay. And I'll just give you a little rundown. 
the it opened with David Silverman taking the atheist position, and he basically went over five points. He said that Christianity is bad for America because it, number one, stops abortions. Uh, number two, it's anti-science, and he gave the example of research on stem cells. Number three, Christians are trying to sneak into the schools because they want to teach creationism and they want to dumb down society. Number four, it attacks sex. And he gave the statistic that 95% of the people are having premarital sex, I guess the unmarried people. <laughs> and he talked about how abstinence harms people. Then he went on, his <laughs> fifth point was secular democracies are superior to the United States. And he says that the United States is lists a number 19 on the list of charitable states. A lot of those things we've talked about in past shows, and a lot of it, you know, kind of fake, trumped up. But as I said, we've, we've talked about those on past shows. Yeah, I could think of some arguments against those myself. Exactly. Well, then D Dinesh had his turn. So he talked about the very fact that they were in an Ivy League campus and talked about how Christianity gave us the Ivy Leagues. He talked about how Christianity gave us the inalienable rights coming from God, went through the history of that idea, talked about the ending of slavery and how only in the West did criticism against slavery arise, talked about the concept of the sanctity of human life and the opposition to infanticide, talked about civil rights and reminded us about the Reverend Martin Luther King whom we've talked about on the show in the past too, was a Christian, and he is the reverend, right? Mm -hmm. And talked about science, the benefit of science that's come from Christianity. Did he and mention anything about how almost all of the early scientists were Christians? <laughs> exactly, did talk about it. All the founders, the new discoveries, and he talked about the new discoveries that support ID, and said that really only about 5% of Christians want to actually change the correction, curriculum and don't want evolution to be taught. Yeah, most of the arguments that I've heard uh, say that uh, they'd be agreeable to having both taught side by side and then let the students make up their mind as to which one they think makes the most sense. Absolutely, and that's true, and we know that that is a terrific strategy because studies have shown that the more you know about evolution, the more you are likely to disbelieve it. The more you believe in intelligent design, the more you know about evolution. So we love to evolution to be taught because when you really look at it, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, and we've if you want to believe programs. it, you have to take a totally blind faith approach to it. And that's why they were pushing for many years this idea that evolution is a fact because they didn't want people to examine the evidence. And they knew about this, these studies that showed that if you knew the facts and then you knew the evidence, you were less likely to believe it. Yeah. Well, well they, they also, had their they also like to say that, you know, evolution is science and creationism is religion. Therefore, end of argument. You can't talk about that. Yep, that's right. That's how they, that's how they label it. Right. Well, they had their rebuttals back and forth, and a couple interesting items came out that I thought would be good for our listeners. And maybe in the future, we'll do a little more research on these and bring them to fruition a little better. But Dinesh talked about a study by Arthur Brooks where he broke down people into four groups, religious conservatives, religious liberals, 
secular conservatives and secular liberals. <laughs> and he compared them by how much they did for their fellow man. So how much time did they volunteer? How much money did they give? Charity, etc. And it turns out, what do you think? The religious conservatives did the most for their fellow man. Religious liberals did the next most. Then came secular conservatives, and then came the secular liberals who did the least. And the study showed that those, the secular liberals, had the most. So they had the most money and the most time than the other three <laughs> groups, but they wound up giving to others the least. That's why they so have the most. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, there you go. They give it they don't give it away, they keep it. Right. <laughs> and then there he referred to the happiness research that we've touched upon on a few shows, but I thought it was worth mentioning again. The happiness research shows that Christians are the happiest people in the world. And a lot of reasons for that a lot because of things like the strong marriages that it provides, the prayer and you know, social support that comes from being a Christian. Right. But if you want to be happy, you really need to become a Christian. That's what the scientific research shows. So a really great debate last Wednesday night. Yeah, so sounds like it was great. Now, Kirk, you've got a news item also. So let's go over that before we get into the topic of the doctrine of the church. Yes, I wanted to make a few comments about, uh, we've been hearing a lot in the news media lately about Mitt Romney's religion, and uh, there's been some controversies over it. And the whole thing kind of started uh, a couple of weeks ago when an evangelical pastor of a uh, church in Dallas, Texas, uh, indicated that Mitt Romney is not really a Christian. He said Mormonism is not a Christian religion, it's a cult. And of course, that right. set off a firestorm among the media, who absolutely loves firestorms, of course. Right. And uh, things have gone back and forth a few times, and basically um, what has happened is that Romney's uh, gotten pretty offended at this, and he's kind of uh, indicating now that uh, anybody who refers to his religion as a, as a cult is a bigot, and basically that you're being intolerant and... Uh, the last thing I heard was that he, he said that he felt that all discussion of his religion should be completely left off the table. We should be talking about economics and political policy and all that, and not my religion, and he just wants the whole thing to go away. Right, well, I can well imagine it. Uh, it's not good for him to, for this to keep coming up. No, and, uh, you know, I'm listening to all this, and I'm, uh, there's a couple of problems I have with this, uh, with this, you know, how he's handling the situation. Um, first of all, I think it's it's kind of non-productive to just you know throw names back and forth and say, well, if you don't agree with me, you're a bigot or whatever, right. and you're being intolerant, and I don't want to talk about this anymore. Right. Um, that's that's not helping anybody. Um, and and the way Jeffries was using the word, he wasn't name calling. He was being technically correct. Well, yes. One of the problems is that if you study, if you really start to study. Uh, the differences between Mormonism and traditional Orthodox Christianity, then there is some legitimacy to calling Mormonism a Christian cult. And, and what is a cult? Well, uh, I looked that word up in Webster's Dictionary to see how that defined it, and one of the definitions of it 
uh, in the dictionary is a religion that's regarded as unorthodox or spurious. Right. And another definition I found is in uh, Josh McDowell's book a hand, called A Handbook of Today's Religions, where he gives the background of all the major world religions. Um, he defines a Christian cult as a perversion or a distortion of biblical Christianity and or a rejection of the historic teachings of the Christian church. Now, right. unfortunately for Mitt, uh, Mormonism does fit those uh, definitions. Uh, right, and it, the way that Jeffries is using it, it's that technical sense, you know, and there are not just cults of Christianity. Each of the major religions have their own cults. Yes. For instance, I believe the Baha'i faith is a cult of Islam. Okay. It's a breakaway group. All right. There are cults of Hinduism, cults of Buddhism, and it's not a pejorative to technically speak about them. Of course, that's the problem is that in the popular language, the term cult is thrown a lot, around a lot as a cult. I mean, as a pejorative, you know, as a, as a bad word. Right. And you I'm know, especially assuming... like non-denominational churches, sometimes some of the bigger denominations will call them cults. Right. Or, uh, you know, some of the uh, fanaticism for Hollywood celebrities and stuff like that, you can say, oh, there's a cult that's formed around this guy or whatever. And it's, it's, it's right. used a lot in a, a, in a negative way. And I'm assuming that that's the way Mitt took it as an insult. But it wasn't well, necessarily an insult. So that it can be done away with, as you said. Right. But interestingly enough, you know, you're mentioning that most religions have cult versions of them. Even Mormonism has a couple of offshoot uh, groups that right. don't agree with Orthodox Mormonism. <laughs> right. So anyway, um, you know, thinking about this, um, so I started uh, thinking about the ways that Mormonism differs from historic Orthodox Christianity. What, what would make Mormonism technically a cult? And there's actually a number of different reasons. I could go over a couple of them real quickly. There, there's yeah, really quite a few when you look into it. Just but, some of the main ones. Okay, yeah, here are some of the main ones. Uh, basically, Mormonism teaches that historical Christianity was in apostasy for 18 centuries until God supernaturally revealed new truth to Joseph Smith in 1820. Now, today, the, the Mormon Church still insists that its current leaders are, just like Joseph Smith, they're living prophets who continually receive new revelation from God concerning religious truth. Now, that's a big difference from Orthodox Christianity, which says that the Bible is the only source of truth that we have on, on who and what God is. Right, uh, and if you're Roman Catholic, then there's uh, the addition of tradition. But other yeah. than that, yeah, nobody's, nobody's hearing uh, uh, completely new instructions. Right. And, you know, basically what Joseph Smith was saying in 1820 is all of the prophets and the apostles and everybody before me got it all wrong, and I've got, now I've got it right. That's right. And if you remember a couple shows ago, we talked about the similarity between Mormonism and Islam. Right. So my belief is that Joseph Smith was familiar with Islam and actually used portions of it to create his religion. He probably was. He wasn't an unintelligent individual. Right. But uh, anyway, another of the major ways that Mormonism differs from Orthodox Christianity is they accept the writings of Joseph Smith as being equal to, or even in some ways, superior to the Bible. Right. Uh, well, how superior? 
well, um, they believe that, believe it or not, if you uh, read the writings of Joseph Smith, the major uh, writings, which are the Book of Mormon, the Pearl of Great Price, and a book called Doctrines and Covenants, um, they contradict what the Bible says in quite a few places. But Mormons believe that where there's a contradiction between Joseph Smith and the Bible, Joseph Smith is correct and the Bible is wrong. Yeah. Now that is not an orthodox Christian viewpoint. <laughs> exactly, and technically it's correct to call them a cult. Uh, just, just because like, of that one reason it would be uh, technically accurate to call them a Christian cult. Correct. Uh, another example was that uh, Mormons actually don't believe that there's one God. Uh, they believe that there are actually many gods, and that God himself was once a man like we are, and that it's possible for Mormon men to become a god in the future. Uh, a quote from Joseph Smith from one of his writings is, uh, Smith said, as man is, God was, as God is, man may become. Right. Now so that's, they, you become your own God, right? That's in total contradiction to what the Bible says, that there's one God and there's never been any other. And there's a whole bunch of verses which, you know, s state that. Right. So that's another way that it differs from Orthodox Christianity. Uh, fourth way is that Mormons talk about Jesus Christ as their Savior and everything else, and it, on the surface it kind of sounds like they believe in the same God as Orthodox Christians, but they actually don't. They actually believe that Jesus is only one of many spirit, similar spirit beings, mm. but that he yeah. was the first one, he was the firstborn, but that he's not actually God, he is uh, like a, an angelic being or something, you know, superior to man, but he's he's not God in the flesh, which is another uh, big right. difference between, uh, you know, Mormonism and Orthodox Christianity, which says that Jesus is equally man and equally God. Absolutely. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. We're going to be getting into the topic today of the doctrine of the church. This is going to be the final portion of a series we've been doing on the doctrines in Christianity. And Kirk, we left off last time with the idea of salvation, the idea of the transformed life, and our personal response that comes when we ask Christ into our hearts. The Holy Spirit infills us and we live changed lives. And that is one of the tremendous benefits of Christianity there are so many people out there that suffer under all kinds of problems, and Christianity has the solution. So if you're suffering from unkindness, laziness, selfishness, if you have a critical attitude, if you know you're suffering from using foul language but you just can't control it and you think, really think you shouldn't be doing it, or cheating, stealing, lying, sexual immorality, or if you're just undependable, if you're fearful, you worry all the time, or maybe you've got worse problems like drug or alcohol problems, Christianity can help change you. Don't ignore those feelings of guilt. I know the psychologists want to tell you that, hey, just ignore your guilt. And I remember someone I worked with once told me, wow, you Christians, you focus on guilt a lot, don't you? And Yes, by actually that, we do. <laughs> Yeah, actually we do because we've got the solution. And we recognize and, guilt as a legitimate problem that needs to be dealt with. That's right. Maybe you feel guilty because 
you actually are guilty. Well, if you turn to Christ, the Holy Spirit will give you power to overcome these issues. And I know I can speak from personal experience that the Holy Spirit does give you the ability to overcome some of these issues. And, you know, it doesn't make you into perfect people, but you have, you suddenly have a family around you, brothers and sisters in Christ who are encouraging you to live a better life. And that's one of the things, you know, I, I laugh when the atheists say that, well, we can still be good people even though we're not Christians. And okay, yeah, that might be true, but you know what? It's really hard to be good. And in Christianity, you have all the support of the church. You have things like, well, let me just read a short section from the scriptures. These are the kinds of things that we are instructed on in church, how to behave. This is from Ephesians chapter 5. It's the first 11 verses. So Paul is writing to the church of Ephesians. He says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. So these are the kinds of things that these teachings that we encourage each other with in church and try to lift each other up and try to hold each other accountable to. And that honestly makes us better people. So are we perfect? No, we're not. Are we better than we would have been without Christ? Yes, we are. It's like that bumper sticker says that I'm not perfect, I'm still under construction. That's right. And if you've ever really tried to be good for any period of time, you'll know personally just how hard it is. Mm -hmm. There's another verse in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that talks about this transformation. It says, And we all, who with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So it's talking about a transformation that begins to happen to you when you become a Christian, you begin more and more to reflect the Lord's glory. You begin more and more to reflect the character of Jesus Christ. And even most atheists will admit that Jesus is held up around the world as the greatest moral teacher ever. So wouldn't you like to be more like Jesus? You can, this verse says, because of the Spirit. There's a 
quote I have from Donald, Donald Barnhouse, a preacher. He says, a Sunday school teacher once asked a class, what was meant by the word repentance? And a little boy put up his hand and said, it is being sorry for your sins. A little girl also raised her hand and said, it is being sorry enough to quit. Hmm. So we as Christians, when we get saved, we ought to experience a changed life, and the church is there to help us. I kind of describe it to people, Kirk, as like a, a flower grows from a seed. We grow from the spirit that God implants in us. We get new habits. We get new vocabulary. We have a new purpose in life and a new worldview, and that's part of mm -hmm. what we do on this show is try to explain that new worldview, that new way of thinking about the world that helps us to be better people and helps society to be a better place to live in, too. Right. There's a quote also I have from Charles Spurgeon, a famous English preacher. If your theology doesn't change your behavior, it will never change your destiny. Okay. So I'm afraid that sometimes, Kirk, there are people out there who think that they've become Christians because maybe when they're eight years old, they walk down the altar and they've got this little golden ticket in the back of their pocket and they think that they can live the kind of life they want, just a, a life full of sin, and yet they are still going to go to heaven because of this golden ticket that they've got in their back pocket. So I think Charles Spurgeon, who was a great pastor and preacher of the truth of the gospel, yet he wouldn't say that that's a true statement. If your theology doesn't change your behavior, he said, it'll never change your destiny. Yeah, that reminds me of a lot of people that call themselves Christians, and yet they don't act like it or look like it at all. No, that's right. So you really need to be living a new life, and if you're not, you should ask the question if you're really a Christian or not. Right. So what are the things besides the Holy Spirit that can help people to grow morally, to grow in character, to grow more like Christ? Well, the church has, over the centuries, established some basic disciplines that really help us, and a lot of the studies that we've talked about on past shows have shown how things like Bible study and attending church and prayer really do change you into a better person. So there's not only the fellowship of believers in the church and the teaching that comes from the pulpit, but there's also Bible study. And if you remember, Kirk, we talked about a study that showed that the more you read the Bible, the morally superior, the better you are. And there have been similar studies on prayer. Uh, I haven't seen any on fasting, but fasting is another area that helps Christians because it helps you to get rid of that selfish feeling that I have to meet every desire that comes into my mind, right. every whim to do something. So when you're fasting, you get your body says, you got to eat, you got to eat, you got to eat. And what you're saying is, no, I'm not going to eat. There are things more important than eating, and I'm going to focus on those things, such as prayer. I don't know and why I just it, thought of this, but it just popped into my mind that uh, a similar example of what you're talking about would be when you go in the military, and they teach you self-discipline there. And the way they do that is to put you through a lot of rigorous training and forcing you to do a lot of things you don't want to do, 
and telling you you can't do a lot of things you want to do. And that's basically how they teach you to discipline yourself. That's right. And Paul gives an example of that is from the athlete, the athlete who, you know, right. works hard to try to win the race. And right. so while the church isn't like the army where, you know, we're going to be like a drill sergeant and yell at you <laughs> if you don't right. read your Bible. Right. On the other hand, we are there to encourage each other. And so we ought to be helping each other realize that people are influenced. You know, Kirk, your book that you wrote talked about uh, propaganda and how people can be influenced by things that aren't true. Well, you know what? Studies have shown just how easily people are influenced by the truth. So when you surround yourself with truth by reading the Bible, by listening to other Christians, that helps you to be a better person. It's just simply the way human beings are. Right. And now really, let's jump in. Go ahead. What, what you're saying is the more people read the Bible, the more they become like Christ, because the more they learn about who Christ is, and the more you're like Christ, uh, you know, he's the perfect example. Uh, you just... You're That's a better right. person. You know, That's the more right. you're like Christ, the the better a person you are. And do you know, Kirk, I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this study, but there was a study done where they gave people tests, and they gave them an opportunity to cheat so that they could monitor it. They wanted to be able to monitor and exactly measure who was cheating and how much they were cheating. <laughs> and do yes. you know that it made a difference if in the room that they were taking the test on the wall were printed the words honesty, truth, character, those kinds of words. They didn't have to read the words. They didn't have to be pointed out to them. The mere fact that those words were on the wall meant that the people in that room taking the test where they could cheat cheated statistically much significantly less than those taking this same test in a different room without those words. So wow. this is just the way human beings are. If you surround yourself by goodness, you will be a better person automatically. Wow, that's interesting. And what does that tell you when they take the Ten Commandments out of the classroom? Exactly. That is so true. Right. They're, they're now, taking those good examples out, and that could explain why a lot of the uh, things that are going on in our schools today are going on. And w in fact, I wish somebody would do specifically a test like that and use the Ten Commandments and see how ki kids or adults even would cheat more frequently if they, they were not exposed to the Ten Commandments. Yeah, or how they would behave overall. That would be a really interesting study. Now let's get into the Church in more in-depth. When we talk about the Church, we're really talking about two forms or two types of Church. We're talking, okay, about the local Church, the Church down the street— and those are believers in a local area who've joined together for worship, for submission to a male pastoral authority, and for the support of one another that we've talked about, this idea of iron sharpens iron and encouraging each other, and also to hold each other accountable. That's the local church. So I think people are familiar with the idea of that being church, but there's also a doctrine in the Bible about the church universal, okay, the universal church. And this actually is where the term Catholic comes from. The word Catholic means universal. So right. the Catholic church 
use that term because they were talking about the universal church. So there is this universal church, this church around the world that consists of all people who have received eternal life by the grace of God. And that's one of the really fascinating and joyous things about being a Christian is that I know that no matter where I go around the world, what country I go to, there are brothers and sisters that are there to support me, to help me, who love me as a Christian brother. Right. And it's just you become part of this tremendous body of believers, and it's so unifying that the the church has the power to unify people and to bring peace to this world like no other thing can, In especially not like the government can. I've experienced that a number of times where I'll meet people and, you know, somehow in the conversation it'll come out that one or the other of us is a Christian and the other one will go, oh, I'm a Christian too. And it's like all of a sudden you have this rapport with that person. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's nothing like it. Yeah. There's a verse, 1 Corinthians 1, 2, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. And here's the point. He says, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. And again, this is that word Lord referring to Jesus as God the Son. Uh-huh. Fantastic. How about 1 Peter 2, 5? Kirk, you're familiar with this verse. It says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So all of us are like parts of a building. We're building this church. We're living stones that make up this corporate unity. Diversity, yes, and Paul talks about different members of the body, different people of the church who might be an eye or a foot. You have different gifts, right. yet we all work together. We don't fight against each other. Right. We instead work together to create that one church. So the church exists to exalt God for corporate worship, for participation in the sacraments, to give a testimony to the world of uni unity, to edify believers and for study of God's word. Uh -huh. so that that is the purpose of the church. There's a, another part about the church. It's kind of an interesting thing. In the Bible, the church is described as the bride of Christ, and we're going to be united with Jesus in the future. In really an intimate relationship that's like a marriage, and there's even those you know, sexual overtones going on there, that kind of oneness, that unity that's uh, being talked about, that Paul talks about. We're going to be united. We're going to be brothers and sisters with Christ, brought in, adopted into his family, and we're going to be his bride. So each Christian should really do all that they can to make themselves pleasing to Christ and being part of that, part of that church. Right. There's a last verse that I've got, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25 says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So we, if you have, you think you're a Christian, you've become a Christian and you're not attending church, 
This verse is clearly saying that should not be. Right. You need to be attending church. So get back to church. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. You've been listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And you can send your comments or questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com. And join us again next week for more reasons to believe. But always remember, the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Yeah,